Hi everyone and welcome back to the Deep Learning Crowd podcast and today we are on episode 9 and we're joined by Adam Bonnefield. He's the CEO of Conux, a startup scale-up business in the industrial AI sector more towards railway operations. We really get to dive into Adam as a person today and what it's like running an AI company as CEO. He is definitely a born leader, a very intelligent individual who knows how to run a company. He's been all around the globe. He's worked in very corporate environments, both government and large-scale operation companies and also startups as he's founded some himself. We dive into what it's like working in both environments and also hiring effectively and how to build a team and what mistakes to watch out for. I think you'll really like this episode. Sit back, relax. It's good to have you amongst the crowd. Adam, thanks for joining me. How are you? Very good. How are you? Yeah, I'm really good. Thank you very much. Look, I will say I always think of something about the individuals that join me. I think you are possibly one of the most well-traveled individuals. <laughs> you've Thank been around the world, some cool countries. Obviously, you are American, but I see you've been in France. Now you're in Germany. Mm. So yeah, re- really, really interesting background. Oh, and you spent some time in Cambridge. But today, obviously, I want to uh, give you a voice on my platform because I think what you've been doing and what you are doing is really interesting. Now, just so I guests know a bit about you for those who are not familiar who is adam bonnefield give us a little overview of yourself if you don't mind yeah sure um classically trained uh, computer scientist but basically as soon as i was in university started working on startups founded a big data startup um originally in political consulting um and after that was acquired started working in in, in sort of big data tech Towards the end of that, joined the Obama White House, helping set up the entire technology office for the U.S. government. And then after the election, came and worked for Airbus as the head of AI and analytics and essentially took that to from kind of idea stage to, you know, a large team making hundreds of millions of euros a year for the for the company. And then finally, now found myself as CEO of Conux, which is a AI and an IoT company transforming railway operations and yeah have, have now moved from america to to france and now germany yeah well from the beginning it looks like you pretty much started your career as a leader you've always had that entrepreneurial mindset quite quickly after graduating your masters it looks like you pretty much founded companies so you've been for everything it seems like and you've done some really interesting stuff throughout the years what was probably your highlight career uh, it looks like maybe the washington uh, well white house that looks pretty cool unique i think each one has gotten better and better actually um to be honest with you because which is good i mean that's a good <laughs> that's a good sign um but yeah, I mean, each each time, you know, it's been special in its own way. And especially because for me, I was jumping between kind of startup life and into this like big, you know, corporate or, or even inside the U.S. government. It's basically like the largest corporation on planet Earth. Then back into startup life. I mean, it's it's been kind of a bit of a roller coaster. And each one each one has been really different, to be honest with you. So how did you find yourself in Munich then? So you went from Airbus as a VP of Artificial Intelligence and Analytics, and now you're the CEO of Conux. First of all, how did that come about, joining Munich? 
Yeah, coming to Munich. Well, you know, Airbus has an office in Munich. So, so even while I was head of AI and, and analytics at Airbus, we were split, you know, between this sort of pastoral French life, which is where the Airbus commercial is, and this kind of much more industrial life uh, in Autobrunn, which is where Airbus Defense and Space is. Um, and we had an office even in Hamburg, which is in the north of Germany, and one in the UK and in Spain as well. So I was kind of always crisscrossing the globe. The cool thing about Airbus is that they just have shuttles that can take you from, you know, office to office. So you really have no excuse not to be in office. Like you can get on the airplane and arrive, you know, in Germany and it lands in your office, basically. So, uh, yeah, so everyone's on time as a result, even if they're French. So I was very familiar with the whole German tech scene just because I was working in this kind of of next generation tech industry and I was constantly in Germany. So I knew the Koenigs guys already and I was I loved what they do because you know the the premise behind the work which is that you know there are all these very interesting problems in AI that that touch industrial companies that touch these old ancient problems that haven't been solved for ages. That was something that at Airbus I was deeply in touch with. And when I showed up at Airbus on my first day the first thing they asked me were, was like, you know, are you going to be working on autonomous flight? Or are you going to be working on pure digital tech? And when I looked at it, I realized, no, 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 no. The most important AI problems in this company are just the most important problems, period. Like all of the old school production ramp up, quality problems, maintenance and engineering problems that keep up the top executives of the largest companies in the world. These are the problems where IoT and AI are really going to make a big difference. So I saw that in Konux, right? Like, so the, the premise of Konux basically was to say, let's take these next generation tools and use them to rethink how railway operations and maintenance work. And this is, you know, especially important to the company because we see that we have these big climate goals where we have to move to, to you know, move to new mobilities options like rail very, very quickly. And in fact, that will mean that in Europe, for example, um, we'll have to double the capacity of the rail network. But as a European yourself, I'm sure you know, there's not that much place to, to lay new track um, in Europe. You have to figure out a different way of doing it. And none of the systems they have work. So the infrastructure is, is falling apart. The maintenance regimes are becoming harder to maintain. People are retiring at record rates and there's no other solution for it. So I loved this as like a big important problem it was affecting the world in this fundamental way. And if we do our jobs right, we will solve a major industrial problem in a way that, you know, is good for the planet and can put us back on our sustainability trajectory. So that was the that was what kind of inspired me about the company and uh, and, and why I feel very, very privileged to have, you know, to have the opportunity to come on board. So as CEO, of course, you're overseeing all the business aspects. Are you overseeing everything then? whether it's from business to tech to hiring, like, well, everything, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's the, you know, that's the joy, the ecstasy and the agony of the CEO life that you, <laughs> you, you don't get to really spend too much time on any problem because somehow, you know, you're getting all of the, all of the messy, dirty problems that, you know, are throughout the entire organization that stay unsolved. So how has the Konux journey been? So just to paint a picture, Konux has been around for probably about, under 10 years so yeah. still, still classed as a startup that's kind of or scale up i would probably say now yeah it's sort of in that scale up phase if only just because as you say it's been around for a while um it's highly capitalized and it's now you know operating globally you know in in, in many countries so it's 
it's kind of at that point where it's no longer in this kind of pre-revenue, pre, you know, just idea stage. It's now operating as large business. But but the spirit of it, I would say, is still in that startup mode. And the footprint of the company is not massive. So we're about 140 people and um, just over 100 based in the in the Munich area. What specifically, you did touch on it a little bit, but what do Conox actually do specifically? Yeah, so our first big product, so, so yeah, as I said, the, the mission of the company is to transform railway operations with, you know, with some of these next generation tools. The first product that we built basically is this, is this device that sits on one of the most expensive assets in railway infrastructure, which is called the switch. Uh, in the UK, it's called switches, you know, switches and crossings. But basically, it's it's the asset that kind of routes the train, you know, um, and and when a train comes at a junction and needs to switch direction, um, that's what it does. And it's it's one of the most problematic and and sort of you know devilish assets to maintain because it is so difficult to maintain. The sources of fail, failure come in so many different ways, and there it's it's just very hard to necessarily fix these kinds of problems when they arrive. You know, basically, our device sits on top of these concrete sleepers, which are you know the 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 little slabs of concrete or wood between the you know between the track, and basically measures vertical displacement. So imagine a, a tiny little accelerometer that vibrates up and down, giving you a sense of what's happening in in the environment. And what makes our company different is we're not just a kind of data provider. We're we're taking that tiny little piece of sensor data, which is now being collected in, you know, hundreds, thousand plus devices all across a customer network. And we're using that to not just understand the health of the switch, but also understand the health of the entire environment of the network and, and to classify what's happening inside of the network. So understand, you know, what trains are going over it, you know, what the conditions of those trains are, what the overall environment is of the track bed that sits underneath the switch. So all of these different things were, were basically inferring from some of this sensor data. And it's only because of breakthroughs in IoT and AI that this kind of work is possible. On the AI part, so I don't know how much in depth you're involved with the AI, but what sort of AI tech do you know you guys are working with? If you can disclose, I don't know, but like a little bit of insight, that'd be cool. Yeah, I mean, you know, I, I mean, I guess if we got into our, our core algo, as we call it, it would be kind of proprietary. But... Uh, I could tell you just the basic approach, which is, you know, we're taking the signal data coming into the device, we're sending it to the cloud, sampling it in such a way that we can compress it sufficient to, to make sense of it, and then and then doing classical machine learning, including some deep learning approaches to infer some of the things that I'm talking about. So, you know, typically, like I said, if you were just kind of like a hardware company in, in this space, or if you were even just a service provider in this space, you would more or less just capture that data, maybe do some very, very simple analytics on top of it, and then feed it to the customer. And as you can imagine, that's not that useful because all you're able to tell the customer is essentially what you know, which is just like, there is some sensor data. So most of the time you could just say, is this working or not? So for example, if you're measuring an electric current, um, you know, running through, um, you know, signaling, piece of signaling equipment, you could just say, is the electrical current on or off? Or if so, you could say how, how strong and weak the signal is. But that's not that useful if you're thinking about it. Because just knowing, is my asset broken? And is not that useful to somebody who's in charge of maintaining the asset. What you really want to know is, will it break? And if so, when? And then more importantly, if it would break, why would it break? And this is what we kind of classically think of in our space as kind of predictive maintenance, or, or sometimes people you know call it like a determining failure modes um, or fault modes. 
this is kind of the the starting point of a lot of the work we're doing, at least on this on this first product that we've built, where we're trying to not just understand that something is failing. Why will it fail? What will the cause of failure be? And there's just a variety of different analytical techniques, you know, from very simple statistical analysis all the way up to the heaviest duty deep learning where you have to convert the, you know, convert the signal processing um, data into like a spectrogram and kind of make sense of it almost like it's an image. And I think the hardest piece of it is not even just that like pure algorithmic analysis piece. But really the number one data processing and preparation piece, and this is something that, you know, you, you talk to some of the smartest guys in deep learning, they don't necessarily spend that much time working on it if they're just working on a di- digitally native technology. But when you're working with the real world, one of the hardest things you have to do is just extract the ground truth from the data that you're collecting. And just to give you a very simple example, so our device wakes up every time a train passes over it. Um, and we really only want to capture just that train. So if it's if nothing's happening, we want the device to stay asleep and, and conserve battery life. But how do you classify when that's happening? And how do you differentiate a train passing over your asset from a train passing over uh, the neighboring track, which is really close. And as you can imagine, the vibrations look very, very similar. Then you get into like a quite hard classification problem, but you need to solve that in order to make sense of it. Similarly, like even if you're doing this kind of signal processing where you're really trying to measure displacement, you know, what is a problem? What constitutes success? What constitutes something that you'd have to worry about? Well, it looks different under different contexts, under different conditions. It looks different if it's sitting on concrete versus wood or depending on how the device is mounted. These are all these messy, noisy problems that we get into and in trying to kind of get even the data to the point where we can make sense of it. And then once we have it, it's all about what do we do with it, right? So, you know, if you're doing it the lazy way, as I said, you just report it out. But what our data scientists do is really think creatively about it. So to say, well, okay, so this is obviously a question of vertical displacement, but can we use this to actually determine what train is passing over it? Well, one thing we can do is count the axles on the train because when that, you know, when it, when it goes over, you know, an axle hits that, you know, hit that slab harder. And so you can, you can count it. That's very useful for classification. And then once you have the train, can we use it to further detect certain patterns and the types of axles that go over and the quality of them? So these are all kind of internal research projects that become new features that we build. And actually, one of the coolest things about our company is that I think eight out of 10 features that we built are just derived exclusively through this data science driven method. So even though we're kind of this rail company and we're quite fanatical about you know, really understanding industrial problems and getting inside the head of our customer. We've also got these equally fanatical data scientists who are almost like reconstructing the physical universe in the infrastructure just from this very, very specific kind of sensor data. So just so I can sort of paint a picture, because I've never worked in a software AI company in that manner, of course, you are basically running one. What's the percentage of tech guys that you have compared to other employees? Because obviously tech is your key factor, right? right. So Yes. Well, we have, a, I mean, you could think about it in, in basically three buckets because honestly, each of these three parts of our company are kind of like parts of the stool that allow the whole thing to stand. If we were, if we were just kind of building a kind of platform, like I did, you know, previously with one of my first um, to startups where we were just building a big data platform. It could take any kind of data and just make sense of it. In a company like that, 70% of our team was in pure tech, 
problems. And then maybe like the other big portion were in more of this kind of sales and customer success mode. And we had a very, very tiny operations team. With a company like Konux, we're really kind of more in this 30, 30, you know, 40 mode where 40% is maybe on the tech side, 30% is more on the sales and customer success side, and 30% is more on the operation side. So why is that? Well, because to some extent, the operational stuff is just as important as the technical stuff. So if you think about it, you know, if you want to deploy tens of thousands of devices into the field, that's a really hard problem to solve. And we need a massive supply chain program just to get our hardware to the right place, make sure it's deployed on time to the customer spec and make sure we qualify it in the right way. So when we put, you know, devices on um, safety critical infrastructure, it needs to be safe. It has to, you know, make sure we don't interfere with any of the, you know, other electron electromagnetic signals that are that are going into the environment. Maybe make sure that, you know, it's resilient and robust so it's not flying off the slab, that it's not, you know, that that in different weather and temperature that it, it, it can survive naturally and and is safe. So this is a very, very hard operational problem to solve. Also, like we're trying to penetrate these big customer networks, which are almost like government regulated industries. So think about each of them, you know, like Network Rail, where you're from in the UK, or in Germany, um, Deutsche Bahn, as these almost like massive semi-governmental organizations themselves. So to be able to operate inside them, you basically need to have boots on ground on day one. And the process of getting physical hardware and something like this, where we're like the first real SaaS tech company operating inside of rail, in order to penetrate that ecosystem, you need years of work to be able to qualify what you're doing, to be able to pass this kind of trial and pilot phase, to be able to go through a tendering process, which is this kind of government approved process to even authorize the purchase of your equipment. You know, this is this is a big operational and sales problem. And then, you know, just doing the, you know, doing the work with the customer, we need to make sure we're in every region inside of our customers, you know, that we really care about. And so, you know, we've been very good about, you know, to the extent we've had traction, not just kind of sitting back on our ivory tower and just building cool tech and hoping somebody will use it. But really just kind of going into the customer and, and making sure the maintenance engineers who are working every day know what our product is, know how to use it. And we define kind of the broader user story together. As CEO, you will obviously look at the future, the mission, the plans. You know, that's probably where you need to be most savvy, I'm sure. So what is the what is how does this look for Konox and what is the the goal essentially? Konox is at a very, very cool spot. And this is why I was super excited to join. And this is what I always tell kind of the new joiners that are coming on board, you know, for over the last few months since I started. Basically, we've got this first product that we've launched, which is now in, you know, several countries in, in Europe and, and expanding into Asia. We have marquee customers that we that we kind of hit the ground running with. And we're in this kind of commercial rollout phase. Um, the main thing that we have to do as a company is move from this first very successful product that we landed with into more of this expand phase of the company where we're moving from one product to a broader portfolio of products where we're using that to, to accomplish our mission. So we're really not just selling a whole bunch of individual projects uh, and products, almost like a consulting service, but rather building out a bigger portfolio of products, which are really going to be transformational 
to our customers. So connecting it all together in a way where, you know, we're taking the data assets that we're building, we're using them to expand into new fields. So from sort of maintenance into some of these operational problems, like, you know, what causes delays and, and how they propagate and, and what kind of load is in the network. So we make sure that the network's able to maintain, um, you know, this uptime and capacity that I talked about earlier into really getting to the point where we are not just saying, yeah, we're making something valuable, but we're at, but we're really changing the way our customer thinks and operates at a fundamental level. And we will know if we've been successful by whether or not the customer is able to meet those biggest, most critical sustainability goals that define its core mission, you know, and, and to some extent our planet's mission over the next several decades. Well, with a bigger portfolio like you're aiming to do in the mission of the Conux become obviously comes hand in hand with uh, a larger headcount, of course. Yeah. So yeah. growth plans. Yeah. You're about 140 people now. So yeah. where do you see yourself in 12 months? I don't know. Yeah. So we'll be growing for sure the customer team. So it's going to work more or less like I described, you know, like we have folks on the ground who are really leading the kind of pilot and trial phases of, you know, some of our key customers and, you know, in, in Italy and in, um, in Spain and in Japan, um, where they're just small teams today and they're just building out their teams um, over time. Whereas we have these other teams like in the UK and Germany who are already pretty significant teams and will even further grow over time. And so basically, as we do these commercial rollouts, we really just want to make sure that those customer teams are, are working are working with our customer to make sure that they're not just using our product or getting our product, but they're they're actually taking kind of on a journey from from the maintenance regime that we have today, which is kind of as I described before, kind of broken and 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 really falling apart, and or let's just say it's unsustainable, like it's it it's it's not able to cope with just the massive increase of demand into a new main maintenance regime where we're we're able to handle it, and then on the product and engineering side, as I said, we've launched with this one product, but you know, already we're moving into this broader portfolio of products. And with the success of each of these these new things that we built, we're also growing an engineering team around it. So I would say rather, I would expect these two teams to be growing significantly over time. And especially with some of the growth of our, our portfolio, I would, I would definitely expect those teams to grow. And, you know, it's a very fun moment as a result, because if you're on those teams, you kind of realize the future is in your hands. Like if, if you're successful and, you know, the rollout goes as planned, as we've seen, you know, you build great teams around you. And, and it's quite cool because, you know, to some extent we've had some new joiners come and, and they're almost like these mini entrepreneurs themselves where they have a cool idea for a new product feature or, or they're starting inside, you know, just this kind of almost just like lonely founding mission kind of guy, um, you know, entering a new country. And then you see that with success, we build teams around these people. And, you know, when you hire your first three people and you go from kind of like, you know, a team of one to a team of three, that's a really fun time. Because suddenly you're just like, I built this success. I'm building this project over time. And now this customer is team is like a real team that's that's coming from your own work. And then when you scale it, meaning when you close a big commercial deal and you really, really grow the team, that's obviously even more fun. Well, I'll say when uh, I really first noticed Conux, I might have seen them before, but was back, I think when you had Series C, which I think was like January 2021. Yeah. Obviously, that was a huge milestone because now uh, currently it's quite public uh, information, but you've raised hundreds of millions, which is awesome obviously financial milestones are huge of that's the key to growth of course 
But money aside, finances you've raised aside, you know, have you had any real milestones since, well, maybe whilst you've been there over the last six months? Yeah. So for sure, the milestone of pivoting into new products has been fantastic. So we've just launched, kicked off two of our newest products and and founded an entire labs team who's just incubating these products. That's just been a wonderful milestone for the team. And it's a huge step forward to fulfilling this broader vision of the company and also recognizing the success of our first product. So, you know, now that we've really landed with it and we feel like it's working, it, it kind of frees us up to say, okay, like what else can we do? And 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 what's the rest of the portfolio that we can fill out? So that that's been just phenomenal. And then just commercial success with our customer. I mean, one of the reasons we were able to raise our last major venture round is because we secured this kind of landmark frame contract, which made us the first kind of, as I said, technology company, SaaS, SaaS tech company to really sell into a major um, European rail player. And so just the fact of saying like, yeah, like this this crazy AI and IoT team was able to go inside one of these massive rail companies and convince them that this is not just like a cool experimental project, but this is something they need to really help them fix the key pieces of their network. That was just a phenomenal milestone. And then, you know, of course, it it drove, as you said, some of like uh, fundraising goals, um, but really also was just like a great note for the team because it kind of was a signal to us that now our future is in our hands and, and we can drive the success because we have the sort of trajectory and runway to do it. Conox are obviously in the industrial AI sector, you could say in summary. What makes this interesting? You know, what's quite unique about this? What do you like about it? Well, yeah, I mean, I wouldn't have thought about it before actually working at an industrial company because previously, like I, like I said, I was working on just like kind of digitally native tech. So, you know, but what's so cool about industrial companies is just like, I would say number one, if you just think about data, if you're kind of a data guy, um, like me, it's the best environment to work on data driven problems and not necessarily best in that it's the easiest environment to work in. Because I mean, I think the easiest one is where you can just like, you know, like my old company started off as a web analytics company. That's easy. I mean, the web analytic data is right there. You can, you know, there's endless amounts of it. Anything you do online is perfectly built for a human being to just kind of consume it, like with that fire hose and make sense of it. And that's why you've seen just an explosion of these social media companies and all these big data companies. They're all basically looking at the same thing. Like, let me just get that fire, you know, connect the fire hose of the internet you know, into, you know, into my, you know, data science team and, and do cool shit with it. And, and that's sort of how most technology companies have been built. But then that's why you see like, you know, hundreds and hundreds of projects using kind of Twitter as an analytical uh, input, but you don't see anything working on some of the like most other most important kind of problems that are actually making or breaking, you know, major industries today. And so for me, what I love about it is the challenge of, extracting data from this messy environment and making sense of it and and using it to tell a story that no one has ever told before. And for better or worse, I would say that that's what makes projects like the work we did at Airbus and now at Conux really interesting because you look around and you realize if we're not going to tell the story of, you know, what's happening inside you know, these processes, you know, and, and keeping in mind that whether these processes are work working or not, 
is a kind of life or death outcome or is a the difference between whether the industry lives or dies or succeeds or fail. If we don't solve this kind of problem, no one else will. There's no incumbent player who's working in this way. A lot of these problems are totally novel problems, you know, and it's not just the analytic problems. It's also like, how do we get the hardware in the field? How do we make sure the uptime works? How do we, you know, attach it to the infrastructure in a way that it, you know, actually doesn't come undone? You know, a lot of these things, they seem simple, but, you know, it's not so simple when you're, you know, on a rail in Scotland and it's frosting and, and you know, there's crazy stones and gravel flying <laughs> everywhere. It's, it's hard, you know, it's hard to make sure it works and companies live or fail based on whether their, their hardware works. And so just all these engineering problems put together, combined with all the data problems, realizing that a lot of them are problems that, you know, you're seeing for the first time that no one's ever answered before. That's sort of, to me, at least what makes it magical or at least what makes it different from any other tech company, you know, operating today in the sense that, you know, you, you know, success is not a given. It's sort of a blue ocean of opportunity. No one, no one else is, is working on the problems the same way. One thing you just touched on there was like the hardware stuff. So I remember us talking about Konux. One of the things that you highlighted that makes you guys special and stood out to other software companies was that you also provide hardware or you build hardware right? Why does that make you stand out? Look, it could be self-explanatory, but I'm quite curious as to why it it highlights you and makes you that much special, that much better. Yeah. Well, I I mean, I happen to believe, and and to some extent it's related to what I was just describing. I happen to believe that basically every AI company today will inevitably have to be on some level, if hardware company, at least a kind of IoT company or a kind of data collection company, maybe to put it like uh, more broadly. You know, I can't tell you, you know, when I would go to the AI summit in London and I would meet these enterprise startups. And I, I mean, at Airbus, we worked with hundreds of these startups and they would tell you about kind of the fancy algorithm they were developing and how accurate it was. And they would pitch themselves and I would sort of ask them, okay, well, how many enterprise customers do you have? And they would just say, well, you know, we haven't yet, you know, tried to, we're working on it, but, you know, we haven't yet figured it out. And it's just based, it's based on just kind of a logical, but dumb assumption at the end of the day, which is to say, if you can build a really powerful machine learning model that, you know, that all you need is data. And if, if the customer or the company, you know, the clients out there would just give us endless amounts of high quality data, we could solve their problem. And I saw firsthand at Airbus, it's, you know, it's kind of funny when, when you would have vendors or partners come to you and say that, so you'd be like, yeah, obviously, like if I had the data, I wouldn't be a problem for me anymore, you know? And so this is something that I think most companies don't get that ultimately all of these hard data science problems start as very hard data acquisition problems and data preparation problems. And this is very, very much underestimated. And certainly as we move um, into these much more advanced analytical tools where we're able to um, build methods that are highly resilient and robust across many, many different kinds of applications, we have to be much more creative in how we collect and prepare data. And to me, this is kind of the frontier of AI, thinking very creatively about integrating, sort of marrying 
your data acquisition with your data analysis. And I will say certainly at Conux, this is kind of the secret sauce that we're able to collect and integrate data from a variety of different sources. You know, originally we launched with just the sensor that I described to you, but increasingly now we're integrating data from partners, we're collecting data from open data sources, and we even have new acquisition sources that we're going out with both our own and from the customer, integrating that data and then packaging it up together to be able to kind of reconstruct the physical and business universe of the customer and only then do all the fancy analytics on top of it. But those first two parts are really, really big, hard problems unto themselves that there aren't enough companies working on. And certainly the ones that are working on it aren't marrying it with some of the most advanced data science methods that exist out there today. The only thing I say about the hardware, because I've spoke to multiple clients and companies, hardware costs a lot. So especially yeah. some of this AI hardware. One of my previous previous guests, they're using satellites from someone else, uh, but they want to launch satellites into space. They're their own. To build satellites would be a huge cost. So I guess it depends on the industry, but if you can have maybe build it yourself, that's going to cost a lot of money. So maybe that's what holds a lot of startups back. I don't know. I, I think that's right. And and I think even if you can build it or design it, because um, sometimes startups have the capital to do it, but just they don't have the expertise to figure out some of the hard engineering problems. So, you know, one of the things that our team has worked on, I mean, now we're on the eighth generation of our device, is just, you know, kind of really saying, what do we absolutely need in order for this to work? Where are we going to take each, you know, each penny that we invest Make sure it's being deployed at exactly the right type of problem. And, you know, obviously you want the device to perform as well as possible, to last as long as possible, and then finally to cost as little as possible so that we can sell it at scale. And then frankly, what I would say is, as an American, this is where, you know, this is why you really want to be in Germany, because this is somehow this engineering talent to not just design these kinds of um, pieces of machinery that have made Germany, you know, the German economy famous with this kind of hidden champions approach where they're, you know, at the center of so many different kind of verticalized problems inside of manufacturing and production. But then also to, to kind of scale the production of this kind of thing where you can just go from an early stage prototype to producing, you know, a few hundred devices to producing tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of devices. This is something where, you know, German engineering models are just the best in the world. And, you know, I don't think it's a coincidence for such, uh, you know, AI company to start as a hardware company in a country like Germany, because this is, you know, this is where it's somehow just like in the blood of the of, of the people here. So it's been fantastic for me. And, and you know, I, I've seen it at Airbus and I certainly see it here. Just the overall approach and the quality of it and excellence of it has been amazing. Well, bringing it back to you, well, thanks for the overview of uh, Conux as well. That's uh, really insightful. And I hope obviously the listeners really took some uh, value from hearing some of the, the thoughts from it. Now, the one thing that stood out about your profile before we even spoke, before we, you know, when I saw your profile initially, when you became CEO, you know, you've worked at different cultures in terms of uh, companies. You've worked at possibly the most corporate companies, government, <laughs> right. um, but then also you've worked and run founded startups, you know. So I'm quite curious how the experience has been from both startup to corporate environments. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's funny because I wish, I mean, the typical story you get is just like startups are amazing and, you know, corporations are horrible. But there are, there are some, I, I mean, I really would 
you know, say that there are some unique benefits of working inside like a large organization. And it has to be the right kind of environment. I mean, like Airbus is a very special company. It's a pioneering company, you know, that was sort of founded as a, as a kind of aerospace startup. And that's very much still in their blood. And then, of course, at the White House, I mean, the White House just has such extraordinary reach. And of course, the other piece of it is we were starting a technology office inside of the White House. So I guess I've always worked either in a startup or in sort of like a startup inside of a large organization. And I would encourage any listener to the podcast to say, you know, don't be afraid of corporates, but try to find the entrepreneurial opportunities inside of large corporations. Because I I think that the thing that's unique about it is that if you could find something that works, you can scale it instantly. Like, you know, we went from, as I said, an idea stage kind of thing to say it would be cool to build some AI tech inside of a large corporate environment like Airbus to pitching the strategy, getting a green light, and then starting to develop the idea. And within a, a two or three years, we, we had a portfolio of 60 or 70 products that we would launch every year. So we were at this crazy scale with hundreds of people, a network over a thousand people all working on it. And so that's that you cannot do inside of a startup, at least not easily, you know, and, you know, there are some very, very few exceptions, but it's insanely hard to just build all that organizational scaffolding from scratch. But inside of a large organization, you kind of have that built in. And it was very funny to me when I'm, you know, looking at our portfolio of patents at Conux and being like, why is this so expensive to go through this patent qualification process? And then I realized, oh, yeah, at Airbus, there was just a guy that I could just send my patent to who would figure it all out. And then at scale, you know, to me, it cost me nothing, but it was something that Airbus built as sort of just a competency inside of another department. So that, you know, in startup world, you don't have that at all. And that is the funny thing um, you're asking about being a CEO, um, where you realize that like somehow the buck stops with you, where if there's an organizational capability that you lack, it's your fault. And you kind of have to build it from scratch if you need it. There's no one to ask for help from. You might get good advice from the board of your company, and we have fantastic board members. But ultimately, it's your job to actually figure it out and to do it. And so that's also the intoxicating thing, I would say, about working at a startup, that it's a lot of pressure and responsibility on you, but then therefore also complete freedom and autonomy um, to define the future for yourself. And, and sometimes it's quite weird especially at a company like ours, because, you know, it's a company where people are super empowered. And so a lot of problem because there are just so many of these sort of cold start, you know, first time somebody sees it type problems that like basically everyone in the company is somehow responsible for such a problem. And I don't see that anywhere else in the world. Like I don't see it. Well, A, I don't see that happening in many startups, um, but certainly that doesn't happen in big organizations. You're mostly working in structures and processes that somebody else built. So, you know, if you're into the kind of chaos and making sense of it and building and scaling it, then startups are great. If you're into that, but, you know, you want to scale quickly and you don't mind some of the structure, then working in a in a large organization is great. But I, I do recommend a kind of entrepreneurial role in such an organization. I have experienced both in a recruitment aspect. Of course, it could be quite different compared to being, a, you know, in the tech world, but I worked for a huge corporate company called Randstad. They're huge, they're across the globe. They've got multiple sectors, tech, education. I worked in construction for white collar. So the guys are the engineers, but what was crazy when I when I joined them, you know, if I wanted to get better, there's 
trainers, recruitment trainers on site. Yeah. So not just yeah. I'm not just learning from recruiters. I've actually got people who are specifically yeah. trainers. They've got access to some of the biggest and best clients. You know, you'll be able to work some of the coolest roles. So I worked a lot heavily in Crossrail when they was building it, the Elizabeth line for uh, the London Underground. So I'm mm-hmm. quite familiar with the railway industry. Probably, obviously not to your extent and probably not the, <laughs> cool, the cool AI stuff. But yeah, anyway... Yeah, yeah. I was responsible for building out some of the engineers in on like the big Waterloo underground. Oh, I can't remember what they were six years ago, but I was responsible for some of that cool stuff. And then I come into, of course, this is now my own company. So it's a bit right. different. And I found myself in tech alongside my brother, who is very experienced in this industry, but his experience is quite different. He won't necessarily have worked originally with some of the biggest companies. You have to start with the smaller ones, the ones where it's probably less exciting and you have to build it. But with that, you probably get more opportunity to work uh, more more roles. Probably that, yeah. in a sense, could make you more money because you won't be specifically narrow-minded uh, or narrow-tunneled down one direction if you're working for a big corporate company. Yeah. If you work for a big corporate company, you're given a desk, and if it doesn't work, you know there might not be other free ones because they're all taken. Yeah. In, a, in a startup culture, you can sort of work out what's best for you, work on your personality. And I'm sure that reflects in the tech company uh, to yeah. a certain extent as well. Yeah, it's so true. And actually, just on the point you're raising, like one of the things I think it teaches you if you're if you're kind of trained in that kind of startup world is just to be a bit like low ego, if you see what I mean, because in a larger environment, because the structure is there and there is a way to succeed, your way of, you know, proving yourself is really being seen as being good at your job. But like what you're saying with, you know, with with this recruitment firm that you're kind of founding and leading, right? It's like, Nobody needs to think you're good. You know, it's like, it, it doesn't matter. And if you make money, that's all good. You know, you could be yeah. <laughs> as the dumbest guy in the room. But like, at the end of the day, if the company succeeds, you win, you know. And there's something beautiful about that because it means that you will be judged ultimately, not by anyone else's perception, not by, you know, how cool or popular you are, but by whether or not, you know, your mission works. And, you know, it is possible to get lucky and for it to work. But more often, I think, you know, people who are just really driven, dedicated, smart, motivated, and super low ego can be, um, can be really awesome. I've got a question for you. It doesn't necessarily have to be specific towards tech. I'm talking more about like how to build the right culture, how to hire and build the right team. I'm in a position now, we've already spoke before this, where I'm building a team. Do you have any advice for me or any other listeners who are currently in a position where they're hiring, you know, how to hire effectively, how to find the right people? What do you look for? Yeah, I think, I mean, I've, I've sort of, like you said, I've just had so many of these like organizational growth type journeys that, you know, I I definitely made like a a lot of mistakes. Um, and it's easier for me to say what not to do (laughs) as a result. Definitely easier. (laughs) Uh, yeah. But, um, you know, I think, yeah, I mean, I think there's some obvious ones, like one of the things, and I'm going to say more as sort of like what not to do, but it, you know, the, what to do is like the opposite of this, like, Hiring for people who are better than you is, you know, and I think the what not to do is just saying like today I'm doing X, my team's growing, I need to take X and divide X amongst three people. And then it basically creates this kind of death spiral where it's like the three people you hire will somehow be worse than the person who who is doing X because you're like dividing up a role. And, um, and then worse and worse and worse, right? So you get this concept of like A players hire B players, B players hire C players. 
And then the organization kind of flows into kind of a worse and worse performance mode. Instead, somehow you need to elevate the organization as you hire and you need to surround yourself with people who can attract people who are better than themselves, who look for people who are better than themselves. And that's like also about getting into kind of being low ego and then also being into being very creative and, and inspiring to others. So if you can do that, if you're the, and if you see that in an organization where an organization has a gravity that's attracting people who are the best in their field, who want to come to the organization, that's usually a sign of a really good hiring culture, I think. Well, I just, whilst we were talking, you said hire people that are smarter than you or better than you. Yeah. There's loads of quotes on that. And I think Steve Jobs once said, and I pulled it up because I think it's really relevant. Obviously, it's really cool. But he said, it doesn't make sense to hire smart people and tell them what to do. We right. hire smart people, so they tell us what to do. Yeah, Steve yeah, exactly. Jobs. <laughs> I love we're that. Not, we're not an expert. We're not, ex- well, yeah. we're not always experts in every field. Yeah, you hire course. people who are experts in those fields to be better. And this was actually something that, you know, I took to heart because I would say the second thing I was going to say, which is exactly this point, is the sort of hiring people, hiring people first, basically over the job descriptions. Right. And so I think what I've seen a lot of organizations is they have a job description. They spend a lot of time kind of all coming together, being like, what does this job need? They put together a load, a load of these criteria And then they just like see whoever they get and just measure them against the criteria. And then meanwhile, if somebody really cool comes along and they don't match the criteria, but they're better than everyone else, it would be very common for most organizations just to kind of let that person go and say, well, this isn't the person that we all agreed we need. I think something you have the luxury of doing often in a startup, but I think it's a good thing to do generally is to say, if you find extraordinary people, make shit work for them because ultimately you're looking for them to tell you how to build an organization. And if you bring somebody in with a special set of skills, even if it's not what you think today you need, if they're extraordinary enough, they can help be their own force multiplier and build something entirely new. And so we see this all the time where we bring in really cool people who have amazing product experience or are these great technologists or, you know, can open up an entirely new market because they have connections to, a, you know, to an entirely new customer base. And we'll hire them even though we never thought of them in our hiring plan. You know, we never envisioned it as part of the role because you want to be open to extraordinary people joining your company. And I think it's a huge mistake companies make sometimes where they don't prioritize people first. If you're really saying we want to have a team of high performers, you want as few constraints as possible on what would make a high performer a fit for your organization. And I think um, this is a really easy way to get rid of a a stupid constraint, which is like, do do they fit the job description? Absolutely. And you couldn't have summarized that any better. And I I really appreciate it all the uh the advice and the stories and the uh the background that you've been through i thank you for sharing it it's uh it's awesome yeah and uh that i'm really happy you're in my network now and of course, thank you <laughs> yeah. i appreciate your you coming to munich for the part over the six months you've been in i'm glad we actually yeah. got to properly connect and do this and i really appreciate it but uh hope the listeners enjoyed uh, but thank you adam it's been a pleasure yeah thank you yeah this was fun thank you so much